Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're turning to Colossians chapter 3. This morning we want to look at uh, verses 12 uh, through 15, but we'll begin our reading back at verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, you'll find this on page 984 in the Church Bibles. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." We were singing there in Psalm 112 about uh, the man who stands for mercy and truth and right will find the darkness turn to morning light. Uh, What we believe is going to shape the way that we live. Uh, Our beliefs are going to have an ordering influence on uh, what we live for. Our life, though, is also going to be shaped by our experiences. Uh, of what seems to be normal, uh, of what we experience in our world, we take on a lot of that as well. Uh, And we may live uh, our lives uh, based on uh, what we see around us. But we want to be living our lives by what we believe. We want to be clear as to how our beliefs shape us uh, and uh, direct us in all of life. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we have come to the the second half of Paul's letter, and we have been looking at how this is a much more practical section of Paul's letter. Having explained 
the message of the gospel uh, to the church in Colossae, Paul was now turning to some of the practical matters of how it is to shape their way of living. Uh, And so as we're turning to this section of, of Paul's letter, it's important that we keep in mind the connection between those that we don't just come and look at these commandments and then think, well, these are the things that have to be done, Uh, but rather that we see that these commandments flow out from the realities that Paul has been explaining. Uh, That's why Paul began chapter three by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. But he's addressing those who have come to be raised with Christ. He's addressing those who have found their life in Jesus. Now, therefore, they're to live their life based on those beliefs, based on those realities that have come to fruition in their own life. And so the commands aren't divorced and sitting by themselves. The commands flow out from an understanding of God's work of grace in their life. Paul, again, in verse 3 said, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, So he's explaining to them uh, something has happened in their life. Therefore, they are to change the way that they live. The other thing that we've come across in Colossians 3 is how Paul used that language of putting off and putting on. And we described it as uh, like putting off an old set of clothes. Uh, putting off a set of clothes that are no longer appropriate and putting on a new set of clothes uh, that now fit uh, our situation, that now fit our new status. And so Paul said uh, they were to put off things that formerly uh, they practiced, uh, but now they don't make sense. Now they don't fit because they belong to Christ and they're to live under the will of Christ in their their own individual lives. And so Paul has been arguing, those who have been made alive in Christ, those who are in the process of being renewed in the knowledge of their creator, are now to be transformed by that knowledge in every area of their life. So if we were going to summarize what Paul is arguing here in Colossians 3, he's arguing that those who have come to know Jesus are to want to strive to be like Jesus in every area of their life. That they're wanting to have this understanding of God and God's grace in Christ now permeate as much as possible and as far as possible the way that they carry themselves in God's world. And so this morning we want to see that those who are uh, being renewed in the image of their creator are now to reflect his, uh, his character uh, in their lives. We want to look at uh, this language of what we are to put on. As mentioned last time, we looked at what we are to put off. Uh, but this morning, we want to look at verses 12 and following. And we want to see that we are to put on uh, the new self, he says, and what that means. We want to think about these verses in two thoughts. We want to think about the explanation that Paul is giving. Uh, for putting on the new self. And then secondly, the expression. Uh, What does it look like when a person is putting on the new self? Well, first, uh, the explanation that Paul is giving. There in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
That word there in verse 12 when he says put on then is a word that could also be translated as therefore. And we've been highlighting that Paul keeps using that word therefore uh, in order to show the logical weight of his argumentation. These things being the case, these things being so, I want to drive home the consequences. And so what is the consequence that he is trying to drive home? It's that consequence that they have become united with Christ. If you have died with uh, Christ and have been raised with Christ, if you have been united with Christ and your life is now hidden with God, therefore, not only do you put off these former vices, but now Paul is saying your life now is to be conformed to the will of uh, your God and Savior. They're now to live in light of that union, their new relationship with Christ. And so Paul, once again, is really explaining to us what a Christian is. How do you define a Christian? A Christian is someone who is dead in their sins. Paul said that explicitly. Formerly, you were dead. But a Christian is someone who has been made alive. They have been transformed by the work of the Spirit. They have come under conviction of their sins, but they have also come to discover something about Jesus. They not only acknowledge that they have committed evil deeds, as Paul says, but they recognize that God's grace has been revealed in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, and that through his death, him being cut off, they have deliverance, redemption, newness of life. And so a Christian is one who is dead, but has been made alive. One who has been transformed by the work of the Spirit so that they now have a new will, a new desire. They now live their life out of an understanding of Jesus and trusting and resting on Jesus for their only hope before God himself. And so this is uh, how a, a Christian is described. They are now uh, transformed uh, by their knowledge of the Lord Jesus and his saving work. But Paul now is exhorting them to live in light of that. Since you have been united with Christ, now therefore put off these former vices, but also put on these new virtues that these things are now fitting and suitable for the life of faith. So he bases it all on their union with Christ, uh, but we can also more broadly say based on their standing before God. And notice again in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those three terms, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those three ideas are all uh, concepts that were attributed to the people of God in the Old Covenant. Uh, they were God's, uh, the people of God were God's chosen ones. They were described as being holy and they were described as God's treasured possession. In Deuteronomy 14, it says, you are a people holy to the Lord. Out of all the peoples of the, uh, on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Now the people here in the New Covenant, the Church of Colossae, is being described by those same categories. They are, they are chosen, they are holy, they are beloved. Sometimes when we hear the word chosen uh, or election, 
that may strike us as a very cold and a very arbitrary concept to introduce. But if we have that notion, we're mistaking uh, what is being communicated here. When Paul says that they are chosen, he is highlighting that this is an act of God's grace, that he chose them not because of anything in them, but because of his own sovereign purposes, his own delight. Just as Israel, God chose them out of all the nations of the earth, not because they were greater or more numerous or more mighty than the other nations or more wise, but God chose them because he chose them. And he delighted in showing his grace to a people. And so here, the church is being taught to understand themselves, that they are a people that are chosen by God. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that before the foundation of the earth, God chose us. Again, that's that's not a cold uh, doctrine that uh, theologians have developed in some ivory tower. That's the language of the Bible. But it's important to understand that this language of choosing is emphasizing God's love. It's helping us understand what God's grace really is. God's grace is not restricted to the work of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. God's grace is shown to us in the overarching plan of God and in the work of the Spirit who transforms a sinner. That before the foundation of the earth, Scripture says, God chose us to be the recipients of his grace. In Ephesians 1, that's what Paul actually goes on to say. That before the foundation of the world, God chose us. In love, he predestined us. What's Paul's point there? God chose. His motivation was purely love. His motivation in pulling together a people to be the objects of his grace was his love directed towards them. And to push back or to recoil at the idea of God's choosing is to misunderstand the extent of God's grace. Not only has God provided a savior, God has ordered things in order that we might receive that savior. And that God has prepared all these things ahead of time. So here, Paul is arguing Why is it that these Christians, the church, should act a certain way? And Paul is simply stepping back and saying, it's because of of what has happened in you. It's because if you have truly come to believe that Jesus is Lord, it is going to bring a transformation by the work of the Spirit. If you have come to believe that Jesus is the Redeemer, then there will be this change in the way that you look at God and the way that you understand yourself. You will understand that this is what God has chosen for you, to be the object of his love. You will understand that you are holy, meaning that you are set apart for this purpose. Just as the people of Israel were set apart as holy, you will be holy for the Lord your God is holy. The the church is to understand that they are set apart for service unto the glory of God. They were set apart to be conformed to his character. That's why God chose them. So that they might be those that live now in light of his will. 
He describes them not only as chosen, not only as holy, but he describes them as beloved uh, in light of their union with Christ. That's how Jesus is described. Listen to my beloved son. And if we are united with Christ, then we can know that we are loved by the Father. We can know that we have the love of God upon us. That's Paul's point. And so uh, as they are loved by God, they will be conformed. They were to be conformed to the will of God in their obedience. And so as Paul writes this to the church, he urges them to live in light of their new standing, in light of their union with Christ, even when it comes to striving to live now according to the will of God. But notice it is not in order to gain acceptance with God. It's not to become worthy of God's sight. Paul is very careful here. Put on then, therefore. Why are you doing these things? It's not in order to get into God's favor. It's because you know that you stand in the favor of God through Christ. It's because you have died to self. You have been united with Christ through faith. It's because you are chosen, holy, and beloved. You are to understand who you are in Christ in order to know how to live then as a result. It's important that we get that because we could easily miss and distort the commands of Scripture. We could come to the Scriptures and we could look at these verses and say, well, what should we do in life? We should be people that are marked by kindness and gentleness and humility. So if I just do those things, then God will be satisfied. The problem with that is that you're completely missing the logic of the gospel, which centers everything around Jesus. Paul is saying it's when you come to have a union with Christ that there will be this transformation where a person now will live a different lifestyle. But what is key is having Christ in the first place. It's having Christ that makes one right with God. So Paul is trying to explain what it means putting on the new self. It comes out of one's union with Christ. It, it's the result of our status before God in Christ that these things flow out. It's not something that we use in order to climb up to God, in order to then be accepted in his sight, but rather something that comes based on the transforming work of God's spirit. But then secondly, what is the new self expressing? Uh, there in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, and then he mentions five virtues. You remember last time we looked at some of the vices that they were to put off. He mentioned five sexual sins uh, that we were to put off, sexual immorality, impurity, uh, evil desire, these things. He also mentioned in verse 8 uh, five other sins, all relational sins, anger and malice, uh, slander, abuse of speech, these kinds of things. Well, Paul here mentions a list of five other things uh, that are to shape the life of the Christian. Uh, compassion, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says first uh, they are to put on compassionate hearts. That is... Uh, referring to uh, a concern about someone's bad circumstances, uh, a compassion that one uh, identifies with deep down within. Uh, the language of the Bible would be the language of uh, the moving of the bowels, 
because that was the, the realm of the affections. Deep within a person, they feel it. And in the same way, we should be concerned about the needs of another person. And when we have compassion on another person, Scripture teaches that that's actually reflecting the character of God. Because God is described as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so here Paul says, those who put on Christ are to be characterized by compassion, uh, compassionate hearts. The second thing that he mentions there is kindness. Now maybe you're sitting here and you think that doesn't sound that revolutionary. Uh, we expect everyone to be kind. Uh, we hear people saying, be kind to one another all the time. But the reason why we uh, expect kindness, the reason why our world celebrates kindness, is in large part due to the influence of Christianity. If you stop and think about it, down through uh, time and around the world, most cultures would say that we should not have compassion on the weak. Uh, most cultures would say we're better off without the weak and that we should celebrate the strength, uh, that it is about progress, that it is about the law of selection. The nature dictates, strength dominates. But here, Paul is arguing contrary to that vein of thinking. Paul is telling us that the mindset of the Christian, rather than living on the mindset of the survival of the fittest, Christianity teaches us that we ought to attend to the needs of others and that this is something that is rooted in the virtuous acts of our God. Jesus' own life and ministry, are they not marked by kindness? Uh, you think of Jesus' teachings, the parable, uh, the, the parables of the Good Samaritan, uh, where he teaches what kindness looks like towards our neighbor. And then he ends by saying, go and do likewise. He's teaching us how kindness is to shape our lives. You think of his miracles, how Jesus looked out on the crowd and had compassion on them, uh, that he attended to their needs and he uh, helped them and relieved them of their distress. Ultimately, Jesus, uh, through his death, uh, shows the kindness of God, that, that the scriptures celebrate that in Christ we see the loving kindness of our God and Savior appearing, that he saves us according to his mercy. The gospel teaches that the one who was strongest laid down his life for the weakest. And that understanding actually transforms the way that we orient our lives. That the one who had all strength was willing to care for the needs of others. The Son of God came into this world out of compassion uh, to attend to the needs of sinners. He laid down his life in order that we might be raised up uh, to eternal life. So if you're sitting here this morning, you might look at this list and you might say, uh, uh, compassion, kindness. We should be kind people. I would agree with you, we should be kind people. But we should also step back and we should ask ourselves, what right do we have to hold that conviction? What, what accounts for that conviction? What evidence do we have for thinking that it is right to be compassionate towards those who are needy, rather than asserting the survival of the fittest? It's one thing, in other words, to live and to assume certain things to be good. 
we can be influenced by a culture that has the uh, the remnants of Christianity shaping it. But why is it that when people would say selection would dictate to not care for the weak and the needy, why is it that as a culture we still say that we should care for those who are in needy situations? And ultimately, the, the cause for that is, is our understanding of God, who has acted in such a way in Christ to care for and to show the kindness towards those in need. That's what actually shaped the world. And so if you're sitting here and you're thinking kindness is important, realize that's Christianity that's shaping and influencing you. That's Christianity, that's the works of God that is making you believe that those virtues are so important. So Paul here emphasizes compassionate hearts, kindness. He mentions as well humility. Humility may be looked down upon uh, by many as a weakness, but again, humility is something that we see connected with the life of Christ. Uh, most succinctly, it's put together by Paul in his letter to the Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He not only took on the form of a servant, but he died the death on a cross. And God has exalted him. But he humbled himself. The Son of God lowered himself in order to care for the needs of others. And that again shapes the way that people live. When, Paul, when Peter wrote to the church, he told them to be clothed with humility. And no doubt Peter was still thinking about the time when Jesus himself wrapped that towel around himself and washed the disciples' feet. The Son of God, who created all things, lowered himself to attend to the needs of another. And if it is true that the Son of God was willing to lower himself in order to lift up another, then how can his followers not mimic that same pattern in their life? It's not a sign of weakness. It's their glory. Because they're reflecting, they're mirroring the character of their God. And so Paul here says part of the new self is mirroring the character of God in their kindness, in their humility, in their meekness, their consideration of others. Uh, meekness or gentleness has the idea uh, of uh, not thinking of oneself as more important than others. Uh, Moses was someone that was described in scripture as meek. Uh, you remember that he was even opposed by his own brother and sister. And yet it said that Moses was meek about it. Uh, he didn't assert himself. Rather, he entrusted himself to the Lord uh, to defend himself. And in the same way, meekness or gentleness is to characterize uh, the people of God. Uh, they are to be people uh, who don't try to carry themselves with an air of moral superiority or being uh, greater than others, but rather entrusting themselves uh, to their Lord and uh, to care for them. Even when it comes to things like defending our faith, the scriptures tell us to do so with gentleness, uh, to do so uh, with meekness, meaning that we're ultimately entrusting the situation to the Lord. 
when when a brother or a sister goes to correct uh, someone who has fallen into sin, we're told to do that with meekness, meaning that it's not looking down on them, but rather it is I understanding that we ourselves are liable uh, and vulnerable to sin and that we're entrusting the situation to the Lord's care and the Lord's grace. Meekness is also something that is to be demonstrated in the life of the church. The fifth thing that he mentions is patience. If our basic orientation is one of kindness, patience is to be the kind of reaction that we display towards others, as one person has said. But all of these qualities uh, are used to describe the Lord in the New Testament. They're not simply being picked at random, but rather they are saying, this is, this is a reflection of the character uh, of our God. So those who are being renewed in the knowledge of their creator are to reflect the, uh, the character of their God in their own lives. One commentator points out something else interesting about what Paul's saying here. When Paul talks about putting off the vices of the former lifestyle and putting on the virtues of what a Christian should look like, you notice that in this list here, he never mentions cleverness. He never mentions being industrious. He never, he never mentions uh, these things, not because they're unimportant, but rather because what is basic to Christianity is community. What is basic and fundamental to the Christian life is living one's life in the church. That putting on one's new self means expressing that faith in the context of Christ's people. And that's why all of these virtues that he's highlighting here are relational because they are what is to shape the, the, the community. It's what is to preserve the unity of the saints and the fellowship of the Lord's people. He goes on in verse 13, and he says, uh, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul doesn't conceive of the church as being immune to trouble. Uh, Paul's mindset is not, Unity will be preserved if we can just avoid problems. That the unity of the church will be strong if, if we just, no problems ever come up and we don't have to address them. Paul's mindset is, is that unity will be preserved when meekness, when humility, when gentleness, when compassion mark the people of God. And they're able to address those problems in a way that comes under the rule of Christ. That's why he goes on to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What he means by that is the word there for peace or rule is a word that means to judge. It means to give verdict like an umpire. Let the, let the will of the king dictate how the people in his kingdom conduct themselves because that is how unity is preserved. When he says, above all these things, put on love, he's saying that that's actually what binds together the virtues. Uh, one commentator described it as uh, comparing it when Paul had his shipwreck in the book of Acts. 
you remember how it said that the ship was really pulling apart and they actually put ropes underneath really to hold the ship together and he was saying that in the same way that's what that's what's to happen in the church that above all these things love is to hold these virtues together the church is to be marked by certain characteristics but those characteristics are mirror reflections of their understanding of uh, the Lord Jesus and of the rule of Christ over them in their lives. And so he says, bear with one another. Isn't that such a, a liberating description? Paul recognizes that there will be butting of heads. Not everything will be easy uh, between Christians. There will be differences. There will be situations where people can take offense. We read of them in the New Testament. You think of Euodia and Syntyche, and how Paul has to single them out in his letter and says to agree in the Lord, which really means orient your minds to the Lord. He's telling these two women that whatever their grievance is, that they are to both humble themselves under the will of Christ. You can imagine how these two women, whatever the situation was, one took offense. Perhaps she confronted the other about that. The other one denies any wrongdoing. They both come away saying the other one's impossible to deal with. I can't stand that person. And as a result, there's this rift in the relationship. And that rift becomes bigger and bigger and a division is happening even perhaps in the church. And Paul tells them, set your minds in the Lord. Rather than being so concerned about the offense that has happened to you, you're to be orienting yourself around how does this shape my understanding of Christ? Part of bearing with one another is recognizing that not everything is right. Not everything is whole. This relationship isn't complete. There's something off about it. And yet we hold it together. And Paul says to bear with one another, understanding uh, that if there is a complaint against one another, uh, there is that forgiveness extended as well. Even when there is uh, something not quite right, uh, we are to live our lives shaped and thinking about Christ. They are to reflect on the Lord's patience with them personally and how the Lord continues to deal gently with them despite the many times that they have acted out. Their bearing with one another was not, the result, uh, was not to result in their bitterness or resentment, but rather in their goodwill uh, towards the other. So when Paul says to them, bear with one another, he doesn't mean clench your fists and grind your teeth and just try not to shout at them. When he says to bear with one another, he's, he's really saying endure it, recognizing that the Lord has been patient with you. Endure it, recognizing the gentleness of the Lord towards you. And to now treat that person not on the basis of what they deserve based on how they treat you, but rather under the rubric of how do I honor Christ in this situation? How do I bring Christ into the way that I treat this person? That's what Jesus meant when he said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you, that speak evil against you. There is no place for a bitterness or a, a resentment 
taking root in the life of the saints, but rather they are to respond always by the rule of Christ, understanding how Christ has delivered them there themselves to extend the goodwill towards others. And Paul adds to this, not only are they to bear with one another, but he says, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Or more literally, as the Lord has forgiven you, in the same manner, even you. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us uh, who have repented, so forgiveness uh, ought to be shown to others. Uh, There ought to be a readiness, particularly amongst those who have come to celebrate God's forgiveness to extend forgiveness towards others. Uh, Forgiveness should be the makeup of the church. uh, And that's uh, uh, the principle that Paul is uh, accenting. We are to be people that overlook a multitude of sins and uh, celebrate uh, forgiveness one to another. What does it mean or or what we, uh, what, what do we mean when we talk about putting off and putting on? Paul here is not just talking about putting off one moral system and then putting on a different moral system. Paul is talking about recognizing an old reality that no longer defines us and now living in light of the new creation. If you have come to trust in Christ, we are now to live centered by that understanding of God's grace and allow it to shape the way that we live and treat one another. It means not just putting off things. It means that certain characteristics are now to be present. That we are to be people who reflect the character of God in our, in our own life. We are to strive uh, to honor Christ by in reflecting his image in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over your word, that it would not only humble us, uh, but that it would drive us uh, to you, recognizing that we fall short in a number of ways. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people uh, who uh, are forgiving and people who let the rule of Christ shape us in the way that we treat others. Lord, help us to be mindful of the many ways in which we uh, have uh, offended others and how we are people that live in gratitude for your forgiveness. Go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen.